0: If you would grab your Bibles and open to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We started this series last week called Living Counter. And and the general idea is that uh, we live in a world where there's a cultural wave that seems to be headlong running against the flow of the gospel. So as we study the scriptures, and as we dig into the word of God, we find that the culture around us is pushing back against those truths. And the church itself is often caught up in the midst of that flow. As we try to, as the church, find our footing as it relates to uh, key areas within our culture, we find the church increasingly compromising the truth of the scriptures. And we find ourselves caught kind of in the middle of that. And so we laid all of that out last week, and then I said to you, believe it or not, that's actually really good news for us. It doesn't make any sense, but when you look historically at the church, the church has always been strongest when we operate as a countercultural force within a flow of prevailing culture that's moving a different direction. Let me say it differently. When the culture is Christian, the church often fails to truly follow Christ. But when the culture pushes against us as the church, we see the church stand up and move forward with power. And so the call of Jesus towards us is to live counter, is to be a part of that countercultural movement, to uh, secure ourselves on uh, biblical values and truth. And we we used kind of to frame this whole series, a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't have time to go back uh, and, and hit all of that again, but... In brief, uh, Bonhoeffer was a leader in the German church coming into World War II. He was training pastors in a little seminary called Finkenwald. And uh, there were all kinds of people, particularly uh, good friends of Bonhoeffer, who were saying, like, seriously, you need to back off. Like, what you're doing is over the top. The challenge that you're doing, the way that you're pushing people, you're going to drive people away from the church because of how serious, you, how focused you are on this. And the story goes that Bonhoeffer took his friend out to a little rise. And um, as they were standing on that rise, they could look to the south and see Finkenwald Seminary. But as they looked to the north, they could see Nazi planes taking off and landing on an airstrip and Nazi troops marching in formation as they were training. And Bonhoeffer effectively said to his friend, this must be stronger than that. This little seminary with this ragtag bunch of seminarians must be stronger than this, this incredible military force that's being developed that became known as Nazi Germany and the Third Reich. And of course, if you know history, you know that that is the way that it worked out, that the, the church was sustained and will be sustained. And what we said last week, when I believe deeply to be true, is that the, the, the conclusion is not in doubt. The church will survive this cultural onslaught and every cultural onslaught. The church will prevail because Jesus said that the church will prevail and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And so the church will be fine. The question is, will we be a part of that move? And that's the invitation that I believe this summer has for us as we look at each of these factors. Our goal is to uh, take a series of cultural factors and biblical factors and ask the question, what's it look like for this biblical factor to be stronger than that, this cultural flow that's pushing against us? And so we're gonna begin today with a set of factors that I believe are foundational for everything else, kind of the the primary foundation. We use Psalm 67 as a framework and we'll continue to refer back to that over the course of the summer. Psalm 67 began with the Psalmist saying, may the Lord be gracious to us and bless us And may his face shine upon us. And that idea of the face of God shining on us became the framework for all that followed as the psalmist laid out what it looks like for us to be people in the midst of a culture that's pushing against us. But the very first request made after that first verse, that that framing verse, is that the psalmist said, may the Lord be gracious to us and bless us, make his face to shine upon us, that your ways may be known on the earth. That's the request, that your ways would be known on the earth. So there's two assumptions found in that request, that your ways may be known on the earth. The first assumption is this, that there's a right way and a wrong way, that there's God's way and there's another way. Because if everything was the same, if it didn't really matter, the request doesn't make any sense, right? Why ask God that his ways would be known on the earth if all the ways are the same? So there's at least a foundational assumption by the psalmist that there's a right way, a God's way that is contrasting with the other way, the the not right way, the wrong way. But, But here's the second assumption. That your ways may be known on the earth assumes that that way doesn't only exist but that it's knowable. That we can through the process of growing in Christ discover the way of God. That we can understand the truth of God. And so I would say it this way, truth must be greater than lies. Truth must be greater than lies. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we in our culture today have a very interesting relationship with the truth. Uh, there, there's an awful lot swirling around uh, as we try to understand what's true and what's not true. Let me, uh, let me illustrate it with a story. Three umpires just had finished umpiring their baseball games, and they were standing in the parking lot having a conversation about how they handled umpiring—you know, kind of philosophy of umpiring stuff. And they're standing in the parking lot, and the first umpire says, "You know, I I see it pretty straightforward. My job is to get in there behind the catcher, and I get down, and the pitcher throws the pitch, and and I call it like it is. If it's a ball, I call it a ball. If it's a strike, I call it a strike." And the second umpire said, well, I get what you're saying, but I think you're oversimplifying it because for me, I get in there, I get behind the catcher and the pitcher throws a pitch and I call it like I see it. Sometimes people see it differently than me and they tell me about it, but I call it like I see it. We may see it a little bit differently, but that's okay. I'm the umpire. I call it like I see it. And the third umpire said, well, those seem to be uh, kind of variations of one another. I think I see it a lot differently than that. When I go into a game, I get in there behind the catcher and the pitcher throws the pitch. And as the pitch is coming in, I'm thinking that ain't nothing till I name it. I'll call it whatever I want to call it because it's nothing till I call it something. Now, Those three umpires represent three different versions of how we interact with the truth. The first umpire is a a traditionalist. Uh, Traditionalist meaning truth is absolute, it is what it is, and our job is not to change it or interpret it, it it's simply to discover it. That's either a ball or a strike. It is or it isn't a strike. That's just the way it works. The second one represents what is normative for most of us. For the last hundred years or so, our culture has been uh, approaching truth from a relativistic point of view. It's a ball or a strike based on how I see it. Truth depends upon your perspective. It's very difficult for us as a culture to make any absolute truth claims because there's always the recognition that somebody may see it differently than I see it. And so if somebody sees it differently, they may have a different perspective and what's true for me may not be true for them. That's relativistic truth. The third umpire represents a relatively new way of looking at things, popularized only in the last couple decades, known simply now as postmodern truth. Um, It will probably be developed into a fancier name than that at some point in time down the line. But postmodernism effectively says this, it's not so much the truth is out there and needs to be discovered, it's not even so much the truth is out there and we all have different perspectives on it, but truth actually resides within me And it's in my declaration that something becomes true. Which means that my truth and your truth may be radically different from one another, but that doesn't matter because it comes out of me. And if it comes out of you, if it comes out of you, it's your truth. If it comes out of me, it's my truth. So the question is what do we do with that? How do we live in that kind of a world? Former President Barack Obama gave an interview to uh, David Letterman several years ago. Some of you just shut me off because I said, Barack Obama, you need to cut it out because there's actually good things that all people say if you just listen to them. So listen to, uh, I really wanted to attribute this to Rush Limbaugh to see if you would nod with me a little bit more. But anyway, um, okay. So uh, Barack Obama said this, uh, one of the biggest problems we have with our democracy is the degree to which we do not share a common baseline of facts. That's not a partisan statement. That's just true. Like, whether you're on the right or the left, or like most of us, confused in the middle somewhere, if we don't agree on what's actual reality, it's very difficult for us to operate as a society. Like we're in this crazy place where like there's this group of people over here who believe one thing's true, this group of people over here who believe the other thing's true. They are absolutely contradicting one another. They cannot possibly both be true, and yet both are deeply holding to them and you're saying, "How do we how do we like handle this? What do we what do we do with this?" We must have a baseline of facts if we are to operate as a society. But this isn't new. If you go back to Bonhoeffer's contemporaries in Nazi Germany, Joseph Goebbels was the minister of propaganda for Nazi Germany. Goebbels said this, we do not talk to say something, but to gain a certain effect. Now knowing Nazi Germany and all that happened under the Third Reich, that's a chilling statement. We do not talk to say something, but to gain a certain effect, and yet if you remove it from its context, you could place it into any one of our normal interactions on a day to day, week to week basis. We don't talk to communicate truth to say something. We talk to gain an effect. We talk to set the environment. Our goal is not to speak in facts. Our goal is to manipulate an outcome. So in that environment, what's true? What's false? But I believe that the argument goes back far further than World War II. In fact, I would say that this issue of truth and lies goes all the way back to the beginning of recorded time. That history itself is built upon this battle between truth and lies. And so I want you to listen to Jesus. Bill's gonna come and read for us. As Jesus spoke to a group of Jews who had said that they were willing to follow after him. And he laid out for them the nature of truth and the nature of lies and the way that those interact. So listen to John chapter 8, starting in verse 31.
1: So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. convicts me of sin. If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God.
0: Thank you, Bill. Would you pray with me? Jesus... As you prayed when you were on this earth, so we pray, your word is truth. So God, as we come to your word, would you secure the truth in our hearts and our minds and our spirits? Would you draw us back to the solid foundation? Would you give us, as your people, the strength and the courage to stand in the truth? As we open your word, would you speak clearly and loudly to us? May my words fall to the ground and be forgotten, but may your words remain, penetrating our hearts, changing us, growing up and bearing much fruit. And so speak, Lord, your servants who are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's a passage packed full of stuff. I don't want to try to hit all of it, but I want to try to pull out of this uh, three different ideas. The first one is the, the nature of good and evil itself. Jesus is going to lay out for us a spiritual battle that's dramatically different than most of us conceive. So the nature of good and evil. And then the nature of lies and the nature of the truth. How does Jesus speak of lies and truth, and how does that impact us as we journey together 2,000 years later? So the nature of good and evil, nature of lies, the nature of the truth. So Jesus coming to a group of Jewish professing believers. This is uh, right in the middle of a several chapter narrative where John's laying out for us this idea of uh, a crowd having committed to following Jesus. These are people who had said with their mouth, we want to follow you. Majority of them coming out of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. They had seen the the bread and the fish multiplied and thought, like, this is a good deal, following after Jesus, because you, like, get fed. Like, this is, this is good. We like this. And so they, they had jumped in and began to follow, and Jesus is seeing that their roots aren't deep. And so, uh, like, systematically over the course of these several chapters, he just is, like, like, peeling people off. You know, there's, like, sending them away, sending them away. And so this conversation is with people who are professed believers in Jesus, who he is pushing on this idea of truth, and very quickly becomes adversarial with them. But it's fascinating because he starts out with this, um, th- this very well-known statement. The end of verse 31 going into 32. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You've probably heard that over and over and over again in your life. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now keep in mind, he's talking to Jewish people the majority of which are Jewish leaders who would have been trained in the Old Testament, who would have had the first five books of the Bible memorized, and many of them having the entire scriptures memorized. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. Anybody read the Old Testament? Like, talk about an interesting perspective of truth, right? Like, we're, what do you mean? We're the nation of Israel. We've never been enslaved by anyone. Like, have you read Exodus? Because it's kind of all about your slavery, right? Like, have you read the rest of the Old Testament? Because it's all about the cycle that you're in of being free and then being enslaved and being free and being enslaved. Like, what, what do you mean you've never been slaves to anyone, See, what what Jesus is saying is, is there's a kind of freedom that you're invited into as the people of God and their response shows that they're not tracking, right? They have a different definition of slavery and a different definition of freedom. And this should relate to us because when you hear the truth will set you free, if I was gonna bring 15 of you up here and have 15 of you give 15 definitions of freedom, we would probably be able to summarize it right around the idea of Freedom means I'm able to do what I wanna do. I'm able to do whatever I desire to do without restriction. I'm able to do anything. That's what it means to be free. But that's not what Jesus meant. That's not what he meant by slavery, and it's not what he meant by freedom. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on the Gospel of John, says this, "'True freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, "'but the liberty to do what we ought, And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. What Jesus is talking about is that when we press into the truth, our life is formed around the truth in such a way that now we don't have to sin, but we are free to not sin. In fact, that freedom is so absolute because we're not only free to not sin, which we weren't free to do before because we were slaves to sin, we're not only free not to sin, but we actually don't desire to anymore. That our, our, our desire, our, our ought, has shifted. Where now it's not just an obligation to not sin, but it's a desire to not sin. That's how Jesus defines freedom. But those who are listening to him define it dramatically differently. And in this process, Jesus has framed for us a spiritual battle that's dramatically different than the way that I typically see a spiritual battle. I don't know about you, but when I picture spiritual warfare, I picture like um, invisible beings, angels and demons in like wrestling matches in the sky, or I picture like the, the white robed little dude on this shoulder and the red leotard little dude on this shoulder, and they're just like talking in my ear, right? Like back and forth. I, I, I picture like demon possession and oppression and all of these, and and it's not that any of those things are not, uh, don't have at least a modicum of truth, but Jesus framed the spiritual warfare, the spiritual battle, in a dramatically different way. What he basically said is, the battle is a battle of the mind. Spiritual battle is a battle between truth and between lies, Look at, if you go down to verse 44, look at the way that Jesus speaks about these lies. He says, you are of your father, the devil. It's one of the things, by the way, top 10 things you don't want to hear Jesus say to you is you're of your father, the devil. Ooh, ouch, that hurts. You're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. What Jesus is doing is exposing for us the way spiritual battles happen. This is not about angels and demons wrestling in the sky. This is not about a red leotard guy who's whispering into your ear. This is about Us believing lies versus us standing in the truth. That's vitally important because unless we understand the battle, we don't know how to fight the battle. So Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says this about the spiritual battle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What What he's saying is there's a battle that's happening, but if we take flesh and blood weapons against it in the midst of a spiritual battle, we'll always lose because it's the wrong battle. I'm gonna to try to illustrate this with a contemporary example and try not to offend too many of you. We're gonna see if I, can, if I can pull this off. Um, one of the things that's happening in the news right now is the US is in the process of withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, you probably heard that. We've had troops in Afghanistan for almost 20 years straight, since 9-11. And that those troops were placed there as part of this kind of broad category called the war on terror. You've probably heard that phrase, the war on terror. Here's the question that I have for you. As we withdraw troops as a country, did we win the war on terror? It's an interesting question, right? Like... By placing troops, not just in Afghanistan, but all over the world and acting in certain ways throughout the world, we certainly limited the impact of terrorist activity broadly and certainly towards the United States. So we limited the impact. But did we conquer the idea of jihad? Well, no, because jihad is ideological and you can't fight an ideological battle with a tank. Like, it doesn't work. You can't drop a bomb on an idea. And so what you have is a flesh and blood battle where actually the battle is ideological. I say all of that not to make any kind of a political statement. I don't know that I would have done it any differently as much as I just look at it and say, that's what happens to us when we think we're in a flesh and blood battle, but actually there's something under the surface that's happening spiritually. If if it's a battle of truth and lies and we're not aware of the fact that the lies are the weapon of the enemy, we miss it. We miss what's going on in the world around us. So what are the nature of these kinds of lies? Well, Jesus says, you are of your father, the de- devil, and he begins to reference back in this brilliant way to a story that all of them would have known, Genesis chapter three. So uh, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter three, and, and as you get there, we're going to read a familiar passage in just a second. I, I want to say up front, um, this is one of those passages that we read, and it's, it's a little confusing to us from our modern perspective, because there's a talking snake, which is already a little bit, it feels like a Disney story already, right? There's a talking snake, and there's fruit, and um, we, we don't know, like, eat the apple, don't eat the apple, are eating apples bad, does that make my iPhone evil? Like, you know, I, the answer to the last question is probably yes, but anyway, we'll deal with that at some other point in time down the line. Like, it, it's just weird, right? And you don't, like, there's this question of, how do I place this historically? And I'm not here to answer that question this morning if you were hoping for that. Sorry, that'll be like culture and theology down the line or something. Let me simply say this, that throughout history, theologians have looked at Genesis chapter three and what all of them have agreed upon is that it's true. They haven't all agreed on what that means, but they've all agreed that it's true, that this is the way that we should see the battle between good and evil and the way that we should understand the work of our enemy, Satan. And so as we read the story, I I don't want you to get caught up in like, did this really happen? Were Adam and Eve real people? What was the tree? And is it still out there somewhere? And what happens if I eat that fruit? And like, don't worry about that. Uh, Just listen to the story and understand the truth behind the story. Let me read for you, starting in Genesis 3, verse 1. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is, it that, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So I want you to see what's happening here. The serpent comes, the serpent, the, uh, the scriptures throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament are going to tell us that this is Satan in the form of a serpent, comes to Eve and first engages her in isolation. Adam seems to be physically present, but not emotionally engaged. That's a whole other sermon for another day. Um, he, he's not coming to her aid. Um, he, the serpent comes to Eve and begins to have a conversation with her, first planting doubts, did God really say, and then beginning to engage her feelings more than her grounding in truth. There's this conversation that starts to unfold where he says these feeling things to her. You see it in her response when, uh, when she says, uh, she says, verse six, the tree's desired to, it, sorry, it's good for food. The tree's good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desire to make one wise. These are feeling words. These are emotional words. She's not grounded in what's true. In fact, what's fascinating is that she knows what's true. But what has sidetracked her Is the lie. Dallas Willard, in his commentary on this whole interchange, says this When Satan undertook to draw Eve away from God, he did not hit her with a stick, but with an idea. The battle here and throughout history is ideological. Satan comes and plants doubt did God really say? Interestingly, Eve has good doctrine. God did say, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. God didn't actually say that like a good theologian. She's adding stuff to God's word. That's another sermon for another day. You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She's telling the truth. She's grounded in what's true but she clearly does not have the emotional connection with the God of the universe who desires to dwell with her. Her experience is not of the fullness of God because she's longing for something more. She's longing for something else. Dallas Willard's book, Renovation of the Heart, does an incredible job of talking through this idea of truth and lies. But there's another book that I've recently discovered by a guy named David Tackle. It's uh, kind of an obscure book. Uh, It's called the, the, let me get the title right in case you're going to look it up later. It is called The Truth About Lies and the Lies About the Truth. This is what Tackle says. Doctrine is no match for the lies we learn from experience. Those who trust their doctrine and willpower to keep them afloat are in far greater danger than they could ever imagine. Now just think about that. What Tackle's saying is that the way that we engage this spiritual battle is not to simply know the truth, but to live in embodied experiential truth in relationship with God. That apart from a relationship with God, if all we have is doctrine and willpower, we are going to ultimately be in trouble. We will be susceptible to lies because lies are going to play on an emotional side of us that our doctrine may not touch unless it's embodied. If, if we don't have a full experience of the person and work of Jesus, we will tend to be distracted by lies. Why are lies so effective? Well, the, the short answer is because we're human. See, there's, there's this ability that we have as humans that is unique within all of creation. We can hold in our minds both what is true, and what is not yet true, which means we're constantly able to hold what is true and what is not true conceptually. It's the idea of being able to picture the future that sets us apart as one of the things that sets us apart from all the rest of creation, and it's that function that's both our great strength and our Achilles heel. So let me illustrate it this way. Um, If if you're typically here for the 1030, when you leave from the 1030, particularly if you hang around a little bit, you see this crazy scene that happens in our backyard over here because now we live right next door, and we have these two dogs, and one of them is a little golden doodle named Holly, and Holly loves people, uh, like, like over the top like it 's like she, she sees people, particularly little people, and it 's like her entire body wags all at the same time, like she's she 's so excited and so what happens is kids start to come out of, of the church building up above and they start to walk down and Holly comes out, and Holly is just like so beside herself, like she just can't like, she 's going from kid to kid to kid, just to, like touch me, touch me, touch me, touch me she 's so excited like she she cannot contain it, but see here 's the thing: Holly did not get up this morning recognizing that it's Sunday, right? She didn't, she didn't have 12 o'clock on Sunday on her calendar. She doesn't look for, on Wednesday, she doesn't think, well, I'm really missing the touch of people, but don't worry, Sunday's coming. It's right around the corner, right? She, she doesn't have a perspective of that because she's a dog, right? She, she can't perceive this. Every time it happens, it's just great in the moment. And then she forgets about it again because she's a dog, right? Uh, As humans, we're able to understand the past and the future. We're able to conceive what is and what isn't. And it's that whole idea that makes us susceptible to lies. Psychologists tell us that what happens is that we begin to believe something. And when we believe something, we begin to be formed around that belief. So as uh, they call it becoming, as we become that thing formed around that belief we begin to behave according to what we've become based on what we believe. So if we believe a certain thing about the people around us, we begin to become and behave a certain way based on that thing. If we believe something about the world, that the world is fair or unfair, that God is mean and cruel or God is loving and welcoming, we begin to form around that idea and we begin to behave Based on that belief. Lies are insidious because they form us. Over time, we become a people of the lie instead of people of the truth because we form. And so just like in Genesis chapter 3, there are these common lies that Satan has told throughout history. Lies like, is God really like that? Nature of God and identity of God. Is that really God and is he really like that? And nature of man and action of man. Who am I and what am I like? So you see, Satan coming to Eve says, did God really say, Like, really? Is God really like that? Does he really have your best in mind? Are you sufficient as you are or don't you need something more? Wouldn't it be better for you to understand good and evil wouldn't, wouldn't it be better for you to be able to be like God instead of like you? See, these lies underneath the surface become things that we, we become formed around, and then our behavior begins to emerge coming out of it. Lies form us, but truth also forms us. So what's the nature of truth? Truth. Well, let's hit another Willard quote, because you need a couple of Willard quotes this morning. Uh, Dallas Willard says it this way. Truth reveals reality, and reality can be described as what we humans run into when we are wrong, a collision which we always lose. I love that. So, so let me describe it this way. Um, if belief transfers into becoming, which transfers into behavior, this process of truth versus lies might look like this. So... Um, I know right now that I'm standing on the ground, but say Tiffany started talking to me and just kept saying, Brian, I think you can fly. You can fly. I know you can fly. I'm sure of it. See, so what happens is as the lie takes root, I start to believe, hey, you know what? I think Tiffany's right. I think I can fly. I'm fa- in fact, I'm pretty sure I can fly. And so then that belief starts to give way to a becoming. I start to be formed around that idea. So now here I am walking on the ground, but I'm starting to think, man, I think I could probably fly. Why am I settled with being on the ground? Because I could probably fly. I, in fact, I... I have a desire to be in the air. I think I'm created to soar, not simply to be stuck to the ground, right? So I've become in a certain way, and then after a period of time, behavior will ultimately follow. At some point in time, I'm gonna say, I'm sick of the ground. I'm going up to the roof, and I'm jumping off and flying. And then what happens? Reality can be described as what we humans run into when we are wrong, otherwise known as the ground, right? Like, as soon as I hit, all of a sudden, the lie is exposed and the truth comes to the surface. A collision in which we always lose, yeah, right? right? So th- that same idea happens every time we have truth and lies coming against one another. John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life the claim of jesus is not simply that he tells the truth but that he is ultimate reality that we should be forming our lives around so think about that if jesus is himself the truth it's in following Jesus, meditating on Jesus, pursuing Jesus, doing the things of Jesus that would form us, belief into becoming, into behavior, into being the people of God. So uh, let me illustrate this for you. We, we could take like uh, two hours and talk through this throughout the scriptures. I'm going to take mercy on you. So we're just going to hit one passage. So go to Psalm 119 you don't know where Psalm 119 is, Psalms are in the middle of the Bible, and Psalm 119 is really, really long. So if you start flipping, you will find it really, really quickly around the middle. Uh, So Psalm 119, I just want to show you two verses, beginning and most of the way through Psalm 119, familiar verses that you've probably heard before. I'm going to start with Psalm 119, verse 11. The psalmist says this, I have stored up your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. You may have memorized it or heard it. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What the psalmist just said is that believing gives way to becoming, which gives way to behaving. Do you see it? I, I have stored your word in my heart. I've believed it. I've meditated on it. And as I've meditated on it, I've become a certain way. My life has changed and formed around the truth of the word so that my behavior would look like what you desire of me. I've hidden your word in my heart that I would not sin against you. What the psalmist is telling us is that the word is a purifying agent in our life. When we know the word, meditate on the word, stay in the word, are grounded in the word, we live holy lives. And because we're good enough to be holy, but because the word forms us. Because Jesus himself as the truth forms our lives around his truth. Let me show you one more. Uh, Flip back to uh, Psalm 119, verse 105. Another famous verse that you probably know. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So now what the psalmist is saying is that this idea that we have of being able to uh, understand and conceive the future is now formed around the truth of God's word so that we know the direction that God's calling us into because of his word. When we're grounded in the truth, we're able to see what's out in front of us and we're able to see the direction that God's called us into. Now sometimes that that light The Word of God is a spotlight that shines way out, and sometimes that light is like a little lamp that only shows us the step that's in front of us. But the Word of God always shows us what we're to step into, always shows us what's next. As we're grounded in the Word, it's not just our present that's being formed, but it's actually the direction of our life that's being formed. What the psalmist is saying is that we have to do more than just recognize the lie, It's vitally important that we recognize the lie. We need to recognize the lie. But that's not enough. If we just recognize the lie, we're still not being formed. We recognize the lie, but we also embrace not just true doctrine, but embodied truth. Truth that forms and shapes us. One more Dallas Willard quote. This is a dense one, so try to stick with him if you can. Uh, Willard says this, Christian spiritual formation is inescapably a matter of recognizing in ourselves the idea systems of evil that govern the present age and respective cultures that constitute life away from God. The needed transformation is very largely a matter of replacing in ourselves those idea systems of evil with the idea system that Jesus Christ embodied and taught with a culture of the kingdom of God. This is truly a passage from darkness to light. And I know that's dense, but what Willard said was that there's this uh, whole system of ideas and cultures of evil, what's wrong, the lie, that form and shape us. We need to, when we move from darkness to light, not simply reject those evil structures, the, 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 the lie, but embrace instead the idea system that Jesus embodied himself, what he taught as true, and the culture of the kingdom of God, this way of life that Jesus has invited us into. That's the way we move from darkness to light. So uh, I know that's dense. Let me give you an illustration. You can turn if you want, or I can just read for you uh, from Luke chapter four. We're just going to read the first section of Luke chapter four. This, um, in Jesus' life, This comes after his baptism. Jesus has just been baptized. He's come out of the water. And remember, when he came out of the water, the Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and the voice of the Father spoke over him This is my Son, whom I love. In him I am well pleased. That's where John chapter 4 picks up. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Jesus, having heard the truth, this is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased, is led by the Spirit into the desert. As he goes into this desolate place, he is spending time, embodied truth, with God the Father. When Satan comes to tempt him, how does he respond? He doesn't simply respond with the word. That's the immediate response that we have. He, he declares the word to him. But it's not just the word as doctrine. It's the word as embodied truth. It, it, it's, it's the word as having been experienced. Let, let me say it this way. When Satan comes to tempt Jesus, by the way, theologians see this as an exact replay of the story I read for you from Genesis chapter 3. This is Genesis chapter 3, take 2 with the second Adam. And Jesus engaging the lie of Satan, just as Eve did, is not simply repeating truth. That's the doctrine that Eve repeated. But he has spent 40 days fasting from food and feasting on the Spirit. What Jesus said in John chapter 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Experiencing the depth of the goodness of God. He's memorized the scripture and now he's meditated on the scripture. He's dwelt and seeped in the word. And he has spent 40 days in t- solitude and silence, one of the foundational disciplines of the church, where the world has been silenced and he's been able to focus on his time with God. So when Satan comes, what comes out of Jesus is what has been formed in him. The difference was Eve hadn't been formed around the truth. But Jesus now is formed around the truth. And so his response comes out of what is in his mind. He has spent 40 days with God the Father at the forefront of his mind the goodness of God, the grace of God, the love of God. And so when challenged, is God really like that? Are you really the Son of God? There's no chance for him to move into the lie because he's dwelt so deeply in the truth. Now, here's the question I have for you, and I don't mean it to be rhetorical, even though it's going to sound that way. Whose responsibility is it to curate the thoughts of your mind? Who, whose responsibility is it to be in the position of Jesus when the lie comes? And see, the tricky thing is we want it to be somebody else's responsibility. Like, I want God to uh, be so in charge of me that he erases my mind and he puts the good stuff in. Like, I I, want to passively just, like, be reprogrammed. That'd be great. Or I really want to trust somebody else to be able to curate the thoughts of my mind. I, I have good and bad news for you. I am not able to control your thinking. It would be really fun, but it's not a good idea for any of us. Like, who's responsible to curate the thoughts of your mind? You. I'm responsible for my mind. You're responsible for your mind. Which is why we talk all the time about spiritual formation. It's in the practices of God through community as we interact with truth under the power of the Holy Spirit that we are formed, and that happens over a long period of time, it doesn't happen immediately. But over time, as we dwell with God and we experience his goodness, we begin to be shaped. And maybe it's pa- fasting, maybe it's Bible reading, maybe it's prayer, maybe it's meditation. And you, you say, well, uh, my goodness, this is a huge book. Like, how do I? where do I start? It, if you will be formed around it, one verse is plenty. Start there. You don't need to know all this yet. It's going to take time to get all the way through this, but don't just know it, allow the truth, what you believe, to be what you become, to be how you behave. And then if you start with one verse you're in good shape. All of those disciplines form us but understand, so do Netflix and so does Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever your thing is. So does the way that you engage the world around you So to all of your hobbies, all of your eating habits, all all of it's formational. Whose responsibility is it to curate? It's ours. Saved by grace, we are invited into a process where God is doing this work in us as willing vessels. But we have to open our hands and step forward. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul makes a profound statement. He says, in order that Satan may not outwit us because we are not unaware of his schemes. When we know that the primary tactic of the enemy is lies, we're able to stand in the truth. And so it needs to be exposed. It's not not complicated, but it's deadly serious that we would stand in the truth. And so I want to invite you, if, uh, if you find yourself in a place where you know you're believing the lie, there's an active process by which we remove the lie and engage the truth. And any of us as pastoral staff, elders, intercessors, leaders would love to walk you through that. The, the call of the gospel is that we would know the scheme of the enemy and that we would stand in the truth and be formed around that. So I'm going to pray that that would be our story. And that as we journey through this summer and we look at all of these other factors that they would be settled in this idea of standing in the truth and being formed to it. And so Jesus, thank you for your truth. Your word is truth. And we thank you that you are shaping and forming us. Help us to become who you're calling us to be as your people. Jesus help us by grace to identify the lie and to embrace the truth, to step into that. Give us the discipline and the love to keep you in the front of our minds that we would become the people that you've called us to be. And so, Jesus, we trust ourselves to you in the midst of a culture that's running the other direction. May we be people who live counter. In Jesus' name, amen.